This is the Talk Editions Podcast. Today we're speaking with Jatin Mohan. Jatin is a doctoral candidate at the Faculty of Music and Fine Arts, University of Delhi in India. His doctoral research focuses on exploring the distinctions between musical and non-musical sounds in the realm of intonation. He completed his master's in Hindustani vocal music from the reputed Faculty of Music and Fine Arts, University of Delhi. He has learned Hindustani vocals from different gurus of different gharanas for more than 10 years. As a scholar, Jatin's objective is to promote research-oriented thinking and a research-oriented environment in the music institutes across India, which are mainly functioning as conservatories. As a Fulbright Nehru scholar, his project has aspects of music theory and musicology. It has two objectives. First, to explore the commonalities between the intonation systems of Western and Hindustani classical music, and second, to examine the existence of 22 shrutis in the realm of practice. So yeah, welcome, Jackson, to thank you, thank you for inviting podcast. Um, and and we're here. Uh, my name is Marina Kifferstein. I'm the violinist of Talk. And I'm Taylor Brook. I'm the technical director of Talk. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> I'm Jatin sure. Mohan. I'm a full writer here from New Delhi um, at CUNY Delhi Center. So yeah, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. We're doing a series of episodes about uh, tuning practices, loosely in in celebration of the year anniversary of our our recent album, Star Maker, which was Taylor's piece that that we we released last um, last winter. And um, you know, Taylor's music deals a lot with a lot of intonation practices that Taylor, maybe you can speak to a little bit about that, you know, in large part have been influenced from your study of Indian classical music or Hindustani uh, music. For sure. The, the, um, I'd say one of the important roots of how I think about tuning comes from my experience of studying Hindustani music. I, I was in Kolkata for two months in 2008. So it was, it was sort of a short but intense period uh, where I heard a lot of music and did a lot of reading and a lot of study of Hindustani music. And I was there studying with them. Um, Actually, Jatin, maybe this is a, a musician you know, but I was there studying with um, Pandit uh, Debashish Bhattacharya, who is a, um, a slide guitarist. And so I thought, you know, slide guitar, that might be my easiest entry point uh, because <laughs> I already played guitar. So yeah, I mean my the music my music is not in a Hindustani style at all, but the the way that um, tuning was approached when I was learning there, and the way I kind of uh, let's say rationalized how the tuning happened uh, with just intonation has been very interesting and influential for me. And the idea that I, I remember and actually Jatin, uh, I, I read your article talking about Shruti and and uh, scale degrees, which I, I actually have never said the word out loud. I've only read it, but Svara, right? The scale degrees. 
um, I remember learning about sort of on an ascent through one of the rogs, the sarigama, the ma note was considerably sharper than on the descent. And um, just sort of doing that, learning that by rote and not doing it, not thinking like, okay, this is the, you know, this is the, the, the seven over five interval ascending and the 11 over eight interval descending or something like that. Um, but maybe this is a good uh, first question for you is maybe just letting uh, the listeners know what your uh, background is, you know, wh when you started playing music and when you started thinking about tuning and, uh, and go from there. So um, I started, I mean, <clears throat> I was born and brought up in a family where like everybody was, you know, government officials. Um, but I, I liked music. I started learning music probably 15 years ago. Then I decided to make it my career. Primarily, I was thinking that I will be a Hindustani classical vocalist. That's what I thought and aspired to be in the beginning. Um, but after five years, you know, spending in college at Faculty of Music and Fine Arts University of Delhi, which is a ruthless place to study Indian music, I gotta say, it's extremely competitive. Getting in is difficult. After getting in, surviving is even more difficult. It's extremely competitive. And that crushed my dream of being that, to be honest, that's, that's, you know, there's no other way I can put it. The competition killed my, you know, aspiration that, okay, this is just too much. I can't do it. Um, so tuning is something which was introduced to me as a concept in my master's class by a wonderful professor, Professor Ujesh Pratap Singh. Um, he's an amazing vocalist. Um, and he was depicting how the scale is sung and how it is in theory. And he was balancing the how it is in theory and how it is in practice. And it seems like what you write in theory in, in, in the Sonic Classical Music, it's very different the way it is in, in, in practice. They don't have to communicate with each other at all. You can write, you know, Rag Kedar, which is saying, you can write exactly the same same notes, but the embellishments and the articulation which you put in, it's impossible to write. It's something that you will hear and learn through that. So I was immediately like fascinated that I was learning about just intonation in the West, uh, equal temperament, like what kind of intonation system our music follows. Um, so. Uh, during my PhD, I, I thought that it would be interesting if I would you know, try to answer this question to an extent. But when I got into it, I realized, oh, I think I already know the answer. And the answer was, it's very much by the ear in the practice. In the theoretical realm, I can go and I can study the concepts after concepts and build a whole world of, you know, of tuning and concept and constructs. But in practice, it's just ear. In practice, we don't talk about Shrutis. At least I've never heard of my, by my gurus, by my professors saying that, oh, you are one Shruti lower, you want Shruti higher. They always say, this still sounds right. They always say, it's slightly sharper, slightly flatter. That's what we're going to say. They only say that, you know, their third Shruti is slightly off. They never use the terminology. It means there might be some existence in the past, probably 2000 years ago of Shrutis in the practice, but it isn't anymore. And in history, it's never been linear because India was invaded by many, many, many rulers. And we were a British colony for 200 years. Before that, we were a colony of Mughals, before that, Turks. So maybe there was this heritage which was lost. I don't know, but historical evidence suggests that there was very little connection between the theoretical construct and, and the practical practical realm of music. Can you maybe just give a little, my understanding is that Shrutis are microtones essentially, but they're not specific 
necessarily microtones. They're just like the smallest perceivable distance between pitches, but that's a kind of vague and um, yeah. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that before yeah. going on. Yeah. Yeah. So the concept of Shruti was first discussed probably around 200 BCE, probably a little before that by a sage. That's what you know people call him. It's like Plato. That he ever existed, if he did, what he was. So he wrote this scripture about dramaturgy, known as Natya Shastra, which is 70% about dramaturgy. But 30% of it is about music and about different concepts of music, such as what is uh, what is Shruti, what is Gram, what is Murshna, and all those principles. So in that brief introductory statement about Shruti, he mentioned that Shrutis are 22 in number, and it is something which an octave is divided into. And he said, Shruti is something which your ear can perceive, which your ears can hear. The lowest audible difference you can hear between two notes, that would be Shruti. So in the definition itself is very, um, is very practical, you know, that you have to use your ear. So that's how Shruti was first mentioned. Interesting part in this description is not the definition of Shruti for me, it's, it's the number 22. He said the octave is divided into 22 different Shrutis. There should be some, you know, mathematical denomination of, of these shrutis, uh, which is still unknown, you know, speculated by different scholars. Um, the definition of shrutis never changed. It's always been like that. The number 22 is something no scholars try to change that number. Every scholar said, you know, that it is something that you have to hear, you know, hear by ear. But the division of the octave through that shrutis and the number of notes in an octave is always keeps on fluctuating. So there are two schools of thoughts, and I would say it's 70-30. 70 percent of the scholars believe that shrutis weren't equal. They were not equal. They were they came in three sizes, um, and the 30 percent of them say they were equal. And, and actually, the 30 percent is very similar to. So I was in, I was in, I was in this discussion with my flatmates. And those 30 percent is like is like people who are following Scientology here in the U.S. You know, they are very powerful people. <laughs> so those 30 person who believe, you know, that um, the Shrutis are equal, um, they they actually hold in very high positions in, you know, in our music. Pandit Bhatkhande was a very influential figure and he believed the Shrutis are equal. I found a very clear evidence of that in his writings. So that's division always keeps on changing. The recent model of Saraj Shruti was prepared by Dr. Vindhadar Oak. Um, and he used three different uh, sizes for Shrutis, 81 over 80, 25 over 24, and 256 over 243. That's the most recent model. And his division was very, very uh, unique than many other, very simple actually, very symmetrical than many other divisions. Yeah. Well, 81 over 80, if I'm not wrong, I think that's a syntonic comma. That's kind of leaning in the direction of just, just tuning, yeah? Exactly. All yeah. these three have some They're significance all, yeah. in just intonation. They can all be. They can all easily be derived. And when I was studying uh, Western microtonal scholars, I was able to find um, these three intervals used many times or at different occasions. Or sometimes they are kind of like moving around this interval but using a different interval. And he presumed actually his whole mathematical model is based on a fundamental belief that you know that our music uses just intonation which I don't completely necessarily agree on to, but okay, I understand that in theory, 
uh, in practice, we don't they don't communicate we communicate with each other. You have a different set of principles for theory, and which can vaguely be applied into practice. That's how our music works. It's very different from the West. Mm-hmm. Great. And so, just one small thing: the syntonic comma is actually difference between uh, the Pythagorean major third and the just major third. So that comma is used Sorry. to to temper the major thirds. So there's controversy over what a shruti is equal or unequal, but uh, maybe this is a good way to, uh, uh, maybe a good time to go into sort of theory versus practice a little bit more deeply. Yeah, that would be very interesting, yeah. My experience of learning to get my teacher to say, yes, that's in tune or not, was very much actually based on getting nice non-beating fifths. And so often you have like a tambura drone, maybe it's just the root and the fifth, Sometimes it's the root and the fifth and the leading tone, right? Then, you know, ni and sa are both present. And so I found I got the, the sort of like the most praise, I guess, when uh, when I would tune, you know, perfect fifths to, to the tambura tones. So in practice, I guess, if at certain point there was a, an adherence to a shruti system, do you think maybe it was at some point superseded by this sort of tuning by ear to the tambura? Well, it's a tough question because tanpura came actually quite late in our, in our music. The tanpura, as we know of it today, what you saw in Kolkata, that wasn't present earlier. Let's take tanpura out of the picture and just use ears. That's the only thing they, they you know they used even today. If I'm teaching, you know, if I'm learning from my guru, if I would be teaching someone in future. I would like to tell you know, that my, my student and my gurus tell me beating shouldn't be there. And I think that's what earlier scholars use. It was, I think it was very simple and elegant. They use their ears, nothing else. And then later on, because India is an extremely diverse country um, and also the invasions came and, you know, um, now practices have started uh, kind of using different uh, smaller kind of like denominations of swaras where um, they do not necessarily um, include beating, but also they kind of deviate from their places. It's it's a vague answer. I mean, yeah, it's very difficult well, to kind of include. I something. don't. I don't. I, I I don't think there is a clear answer because also yes. if you if you use your ears or you use a machine to analyze actual performances, performer to performer will tune differently as exactly. well. Yeah, and exactly. they both they always sound they don't sound wrong, right? Yeah. Neither sounds wrong. Um, I'm curious. So then, what do you think about maybe the theory? Uh, 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 music theory or the, the application of just intonation to analyze performance rather than it being something prescriptive to say, you know, you should learn in this way. But do you think it's useful as a tool of analysis to say, you know, this this is what's happening there that produces this mm. result? Well, yes, I would say that the closest tuning system in the world, if there are any, um, now it would be just intonation. So it's a good, yeah, for analyzation, it would be the best tool. But again, I would say that when you start using just intonation to analyze Hindustani classical music, you should be uh, prepared for surprises or prepared for different variations you might hear, which just intonation might not necessarily be able to explain. You know, it's like use it, but with caution. Well, so I guess my question is, I understand kind of for, uh, for vocalizing how there could be such a big contrast between the way that, that people interpret intonation, but for, you know, fixed pitch instruments, 
like fretted instruments, how does that factor in? Because those those instruments, you know, the tuning of the open strings and the tuning of the sympathetic strings, like these are these are fixed pitch. I know there's bending and there's there's this kind of stuff, but yeah, I'm just wondering how that kind of plays into the analysis. Uh, first, I would like to make clear, I'm not an instrumentalist. I, yeah. Okay, I would be able to answer it to an extent, but yeah, take it with caution, <laughs> just like this information. Yeah. So Tar, for example, does have frets, like clear, specific frets, but it has a lot of like clear bending, mm-hmm. a clear, very strong bending. So I think um, that answers that. I mean, that you know, that allows them to play with the pitch. Sarod, for example, yes, they a lot of bending and a lot of sliding in this way, in that way. Um, and also the basic principle of instruments in our music is something that it is believed and still believed it should follow the, the vocal music. This one great artist once quoted um, that Gana Uttam Bajana Madhyam. That Gana is like singing is like slightly higher, Uttam is the best thing. And playing an instrument is slightly lower than that and, and his principle was and he himself is a you know well-known instrumentalist um, and his principle was that, hu- that human voice and the vocals can do a lot of things which instruments cannot it's much more capable of doing things just compared to instruments yes obviously there are things which instruments can do you know vocals cannot but um, so I would say the majority of the instruments which were developed and which were which were traditional instruments and worked on uh, they were worked on with the principle that should be, should kind of resemble more and more, like should match what the vocalists are doing. Should but be able I, to kind of accomplish the same kinds of flexibility. of Flexibility. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the, the one exception to the, to the, to that would be the harmonium, which is so present in Hindustani music. Um, Was that, a, have you ever sure. considered the, the, you know, the tuning of the harmonium? Okay. So... Look, I, I want to answer this, but I will be very, very cautious first because uh, there are very sincere and very strong kind of like people who believe in Hindustani classical music and they play harmonium really well. That's what they do. And they will disagree with, you know, with everything you said. <laughs> um, so that, I think the tuning of the harmonium, because I, had, I have a harmonium back home. And I use it generally when I'm singing, you know, the semi-classical form of music, like guzzle or anything else, which, which doesn't require that much kind of like you know, tuning flexibility. Um, but when you go to a classical concert, you will find a harmonium there. Not necessarily, not always. Uh, but unfortunately, I, unfortunately, okay. Uh, but for some reason, <laughs> it is replacing the sarangi. The sarangi was a lot popular 50 years ago, but today it's very less popular. It's extremely difficult to learn. Um, but I know that for sure and certain, the tuning of harmonium which is used for instant classical music is different from the from a normal harmony, yeah, harmonium. And sometimes I've seen harmonium players, they'll pump the air differently, they use different forces, they will try to manipulate the tuning to an extent. They will do something. They won't just, you know, play it like a piano. But they will use it with some, you know, they'll use use your ears to resemble what vocalists are doing. Yeah, there's definitely, I think there's definitely a similar tension in playing, let's say, period music, anything before 1900 of how to deal with the tempered instruments, how to deal with the piano. Mm. Um, Is it sort of close enough? Should we use historical tunings, that sort of thing? Um, And... uh, uh, and it's it's a bit different, of course, with Hindustani music and the relationship with the 
with the harmonium, as you put it. But um, um, it's interesting that it's it, it's clearly contentious a little bit, the use of the harmonium. Is there a sense that, are there some people that believe that it's kind of like an impurity uh, or, or, or like, uh, um, as in it's sort of uh, limiting the, the tuning possibilities of performers or it's maybe an artifact of the the colonial history that uh, or something like that oh, because or, people are using harmonium yes the or the harmony harmonium uh, itself is representing that but not anymore but um but i would say during the british rule probably in beginning of 20th century i could be incorrect please you know please check that uh, but it was during the british raj um that harmonium was banned from all india radio and that's what the British has thought. British has thought, oh, it's impuring your, your music, and you thought, if you want it. But British said, no, it is impuring your music, and we know your music better than you. So you shouldn't use it. <laughs> so it was banned for many years. And I was seeing this interview of well known harmonium player, Mahmoud um, Dholpuri. He, they went to Supreme Court of India, I mean, went to court, not necessarily Supreme Court of India. They went to court and they won the case that harmonium is their instrument, is something they, you know, they want to use it, it's important for their music. But not today, I have rarely, very rarely, you know, heard professors openly criticizing harmonium. I do not want to name the professor, but someone I know very closely, uh, very, very closely, he criticizes harmonium every single time I, you know, I discuss harmonium with him. Like every single time he says it's not, shouldn't be in our music. That's fascinating. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, my per my personal experience is, of course, much more limited than yours, but mine was that I would hear performers sort of say that, you know, the harmonium wasn't, you know, the tuning was limited or the like, if we want to be really pure, we shouldn't use the harmonium, but then they go and use it anyway, all the time, right? So it's it's just, it's become part of the music, uh, or, or at least in my experience, it was it was ever present as a kind of shadowing instrument. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say look, this is very interesting. I'm going to say that if someone who is like born and brought up in a Hispanic classical family, you know, following Hispanic classical music for seven generations. He or she is going to see harmonium as something West brought into something like something kind of like it's a liberal idea. We don't want to use it. Yeah. Um, and I personally think because you were in Kolkata, and I think you were at a at the place at, at a very wonderful place to learn in science classical music. So I think people the people there would have a much more different opinion of harmonium, or much they would different philosophy um, and arguments regarding harmonium as it would be where I was because I was you know in the capital of India, where are people from all over, all over India also all over the world were in and you have to change something a few things in order to you know make it available for all and it was an academic institution that's also that also changes you know also changes the, the dynamics because you know we had we still have a course of harmonium in our in, at my university and it provides a lot of money to the faculty by doing that you know that's a different dynamic to it yeah that's amazing that. yeah <laughs> Um, so, you know, I was wondering, um, you're here on a Fulbright um, here, meaning in the U.S., I believe uh, New Jersey, is that correct? And that's where I live. I don't want to live here, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> the great state of New Jersey. Um, you know, I, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your research and what, what you've been finding since you've been here and kind of what you're interested in. Well, um, yes, I came seven, six, seven months ago, and um, first 
few months are very uh, struggling for many things. I couldn't get to the GC. Um, it was very mathematical because I was working with Professor Norman Carey and he's a mathematical genius and his papers are extremely actually impossible to read, at least for me. Um, so <laughs> he's my advisor as well. And I've had similar thoughts. So earlier I was struggling that um, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do, but he gave me the idea of I should start studying research papers about, about and selecting composers and finding you know, framing definitions of microtonality. So um, in the Western realm, I found, I found a very basic definition of microtonality, um, which I quoted in my dissertation, which is any pitch is, any pitch which is smaller than 100 cents can be considered microinterval, but it's a very vague definition because particular in, you know, particular in tuning does have few intervals of uh, intervals which are smaller than 100 cents. So just intonation. Um, so Professor Kay suggested me a different definition, not a different definition, but an addition uh, with the earlier definition. That was if if any octave have cardinality of more than 12, you can almost conclusively say that it's a, a scale of micro, micro uh, of microtonality. It does have microtonality in it. And it, it makes sense because I'm majority of the scales, I would say, which I'm seeing, which I'm studying of different composers, uh, does have cardinality more than 12. The most known Harry Parch uses 43 notes in a scale, in an octave. And it's very, very, very interesting. Um, and when I tried to frame the same definition for Hindustani classical music, it did not work at all because I did not want to put any kind of mathematical paradigm to, to Hindustani classical music, not at all. I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going that way. I'm like, no, I mean, not now, maybe in future, but not at this moment. So I, uh, I framed a very vague, but I think very useful definition. So um, I said that any obvious variation of a note in comparison to its common position in majority of Indosonic classical music practices can be considered a microtonal nuance or microtonal interval. So the minor third in Rag Tori is, is actually very, very, very flat. But if you compare the minor third, if position of minor thirds in majority of the ragas, you will, you will clearly able, be able to hear that difference. That clear difference, that obvious difference. Oh, it sounds strong. Oh no, not wrong. Oh, it sounds different. That that knowing we can say, oh, it's, it's micro micro microtonality. Oh, it's micro interval. And when I say when I say obvious, by that I mean because if I would remove the word obvious, then it would be even more vague because our music is full of microtonality. There are many microtonal nuances. Um, for example, in Rag Multani, it's a beautiful rag. You can call it microtonality micro if you want to, but it's not, in my opinion, it's not that obvious as, you know, as Dark Tori would be. It's just slightly obvious, but not exactly completely obvious. And at least not to the, not to the Hindustani ears, to be, you guys might be, but not, you know, in our ears, oh, it's, we have heard it before, you know. We have heard it before in Indus Ragas. And Ragtori is very clear. Oh. Hey, Charlotte here. At this point in the interview, Jatin demonstrated Rag Todi, but it didn't quite make it through on Zoom. So he very kindly recorded it again for us, a nice clean version. That's what you're about to hear. <laughs> Mm. 
Um, so I, I have a, some some thoughts and questions about this. So one is the issue of the term microtonality. It, I think it is very fraught, especially in the realm of ethnomusicology, um, because all like when music is actually made, no matter by whom or it's where, it's always microtonal. It's always microtonal, with the exception yeah. of if you'll have like a sine wave player playing exactly twelve tone equal timbre or something like that. So it's it's always microtonal. So. I think your sort of appeal to like um, cultural norms makes sense mm. and deviations in, in, in tuning from cultural norms. But more and more for myself, I've just been avoiding the word microtonal because it's mm -hmm. become too fraught. So I just say tuning uh, more mm. and more, but it doesn't work in every situation uh, because mm. even, uh, even in the examples you gave, there's sort of a presumption of normalcy and then a deviation from that which is culturally mm. dependent. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's difficult and it's especially difficult. And I'm not sure, and I'm in quite interested if this is the work you're doing, but especially if you're doing comparative ethnomusicology, right? If if you're comparing, yeah, you know, let's say the music of, of uh, like classical Thai music to Harry Parts, right? <laughs> um, what, what cultural norm do you use? And uh, the, you know, the default for so long has been 12 tone equal temperament, which is not appropriate for either of those music. So um, I think it is, yeah, it's a really uh, a challenge. Yeah, right. and you know, the the 12 tone equal temperament isn't even actually really it's, the norm in Western classical music, except for with fixed pitch instruments. I run into this a lot because my uh, dissertation research is also on tuning, you know, coming from a different perspective. But um, yeah, it, it, I'm it's interested as well to hear your thoughts on that. Professor Kerry told me that equal time is not necessarily equal. Uh, first, I have to say that um, you said microtonal word is very fraud, and it's actually even more fraud in the sonic classical music. Um, but I actually never thought about it. I mean, that's the first time you know I, I'm thinking in that that direction, and mainly because I would say because Professor Norman Kerry sees everything mathematical and in the theoretical construct. In theoretical construct, I, in my opinion, you are more comfortable to use the term microtonality or microinterval as compared to in you know in the practical realm, because in theory you can say, you know, or 76 cents is micro microinterval. But when you practice it, when you sing it, or when you play it, 
it might not be 76 cents, it might be even smaller or, you know, you know, you, you, you would not know exactly how, yeah, how much it is. What was the question, Marina? <laughs> I got lost. I mean, I, I think uh, I was really more responding to Taylor's question, which um, was more just, just about the, the terminology of microtonality. Okay. Am, I, am I right, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I even really asked the question. I did the very bad host thing of just making a statement, I think. But I am interested in, in hearing what you think about the terminology. And, and maybe I'll throw one more thing in there to consider, which is because, of course, it, you can't just replace the word microtonality with tuning you still need to say, uh, describe like a micro interval, right? So you you were singing some micro intervals before, and that's a term that I think is a little bit less fraught because it just means a very small interval, right? And And we all understand as musicians that we bend notes a little bit, that we finesse our tuning using micro intervals. And I'm, so I'm not quite sure what to call them. Maybe, maybe, um, Maybe Shruti is a, is a useful word again to come back to the beginning, but but probably not because Shrutis no. are so large. Shruti would be a for Hindustani music. Um, it might work to an extent because we do know to an extent what Shruti might be. We might refer. It's like the Indian head nod. You can interpret the way you want to. Yeah, but in Western classical music, uh, if I use the word Shruti, you guys do not know about it. Even if you would know about it, you would read about it. I, I don't think that just reading about it would make you familiar with it. You would have to live in that culture for many for a long time you know, to understand it. So yes, it would be a vague term, but to be honest, I don't have any problem using the word Shruti in, in Indian music. I, not at all. It doesn't affect the practice. It doesn't change the practice. As a musicologist, I'm, I always think when I think of an idea, when I think about writing something, I think about that I must not do no harm to my musicians. I always think of myself, and it's primarily because I was trained as first trained as in some classical vocalist. I always think of myself slightly inferior to you know main performers. That's how I think myself. I think I'm doing that job which should assist their practice. I should follow their music, and if I'm making an assumption, which in my opinion can override the practice, it should be very tentative and supportive. So that's what I think. So if I'm talking about shrutis. Um, I very rarely get into the practical realm. If I do, I make it extremely vague. But when I take it back in the theoretical realm, I make it try to make it specific because I don't want to, you know, play with the practice. I, I let the musicians do what they want to do. It's a tradition which is five thousand years old. I cannot come and say, "Oh, no, you should do this." They know they they've been knowing this, knowing to do what what to do since five thousand years. <laughs> so, do do you think your work could potentially help musicians? who don't have the time to really consider what they're doing, understand what they're doing better. But I would say that majority of the performers don't care about these. <laughs> I right. mean, they just don't care. My supervisor in India, he's like a very thorough performer. I mean, he doesn't care about Shruti's or anything else. He's, I mean, he's very philosophical, but when it's come to practice, he's very dimensional. Like, you know, I just want to practice. I, that's the only thing I think about when I take my time for and sing a raga. I create something in that moment. It's just that moment, or something which I learned before. But I'm do not. I'm not going to do the technicalities of it. I'm not going to say that Dre and Ga should be this and this. I'm just singing what is taught to me by my gurus. I'm using my ears. I'm using my. We call it sina uh, basina tali, which means um, head to head training. That guru is training you know, um, by by sitting in front of you. And majority of the performers do feel like, you know feel like that. 
but there are few, very few, which they are interested intellectually uh, in answering that question. They do sometimes think of it, but when they practice, there's this professor, Professor Ananya Kumar Day, and he wrote this amazing book. I'll, you know, I'll send the book to both of you. It's an amazing, amazing book. It's, in my opinion, one of the best minds I've ever met ever in my life. Um, and um, he does talk about, you know, Shruti's and all those unique concepts, but when he sings, doesn't care. He don't care. It just it seems like he talks about tuning out of his out of his you know practical cocoon. But he might talk about it in some relation. But when he practices, he don't care. He don't want to care. And I think he don't need to care. <laughs> what do you see the role of the kind of research that you're doing? I is would it, say yeah. Is it more to just kind of understand better what's happening? First, I'm trying to understand what's happening, and second, I'm trying to. Keep the, uh, actually, I'm trying to answer the elephant in the room. Actually, I'm trying to shut shut the word just international Nazis. I'm trying to, that's the term which my professor used. I'm Professor Clement, you know, he was also, he was at, he's at Lehman. And that's the term he uses for, you know, for people who are obsessed with just international saying, this is the only way you should do it. Yeah. I'm kind of answering in my realm saying that, do what you want to do, you're a musician. And there's a lot of practices. Mathematically, I can define them, but in terms of practice, do what you want to do, you know. Yeah. So you're <laughs> I, the intonation Antifa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Good kind> of. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And you you brought up Harry Parch earlier. Are you doing some comparative work, uh, uh, or or are you mostly are you looking mostly at Hindustani music? Well, I I am doing some comparative work, but it's very difficult to compare both of them. Uh, because I'm, uh, I just said I'm using different definitions for Western realm and different definitions for Hindustani realm. So to compare them with different definitions is very tough. So what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to do, I've not done it. I'm trying to move in that direction that I'm um, evaluating Western scales through, through mathematics because Professor Carey you know, had, had a great influence on me um, and some, some sort of musical content in the Western realm and I'll do the same with Hindustani music. And then in the end, you know, I try to do a sort of a comparison that how the evaluation work here, how the evaluation work here. And, I, and it would be very fascinating, I think, even for me, if I, in the end, if I would be able to conclusively say that um, I cannot put both of them in a box, in the same box. I have to put them in a different box. And they I analyze both of them in different boxes, but I'm not making an oral judgment, but I'm making, I'm evaluating that it's like, is evaluating Earth to Mars. I mean, Earth have this, Mars have this, but they don't have to communicate with each other. They have, these are two different planets. I'm using these two boxes, and then, I'm, then it would be, I think, fascinating for different researchers to say, oh, that, you know, they are two different music. There is fascination in the younger musicians with fusion, saying that, oh, you know, music is a language. I have seen that many times with many musicians. Um, in, at least in back home, yeah, that, that's fused, that fuse these two music. I'm like, okay, it's not that easy. These cultural walls are much more thicker than you think. And tuning, it, and it follows in tuning. They are two different realms. You want to fuse them, you have to like understand each and every detail of it. And you can transpose one small detail of it, Western music, and one small detail of Western of classical music, and then amalgamate them to an extent. But you cannot combine both of them. So that's, I think, my work will eventually lead on to where I will like, sep make, like conclusively make two different boxes and compare them within those boxes in their own boxes and then in the end um, come up with a conclusion. 
cool. It's, you know, it's really interesting work they're doing. And, um, you know, we're, we're coming towards the end of our time, but, uh, a game that we like to play at the end of every podcast episode. And we, we haven't done this on every episode, but I think oh we're gosh. trying to get back into it this season. She's bringing it back. It's a little game called, would you rather yes. have you ever played this game? No. <laughs> so the premise is simple. We ask you, would you rather do this? or this and you okay. just have to tell us which one and why um, you have to choose one you okay. must choose <laughs> yeah okay and this is okay. funny uh, <laughs> because uh yesterday i was in this at this trivia night fulbright trivia night and they were showing us houses and you have to guess the rent of the house and oh, I, gosh and i said unaffordable <laughs> <laughs> correct i will not take part <laughs> okay so um would you rather live the rest of your life as a as a dolphin or as an eagle? Oh. <laughs> okay, I'll say dolphin. A dolphin? Why is that? I think we should, uh, we know a lot about the world, which is above water. I think you know we do not know much about oceans, and I'm always been fascinated with the concepts of mermaids and all those you know those conspiracy conspiracy theories. And I think eagle has a limit, you know, to which the eagle can fly. That dolphin can go very deep, probably. I don't know. I mean, I might be able to, you know, find some secrets of the oceans as a, as a, you know, as a dolphin. I might be able to write another PhD on it in oceanography. Okay. Yeah. I like that answer. You're very, very curious spirit. Musicologist. <laughs> yeah. Would you rather live in a gigantic compound all by yourself just like a huge huge property all by yourself or uh in like a studio apartment with two other people it's a very clear like very clear choice for me i would live with two other people you would live with two other people i come from a country with 1.5 billion people i've always yeah. been a people's person there's yeah. no way you know living alone is my worst nightmare yeah yeah okay yeah i'm not sure if this is a good one or not but this is what came to mind would you rather always be too hot or always be too cold? What do you mean by hot and cold? Temperature. Like temperature. Body temperature. Like, body like, temperature? Like, 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 say the weather. Always oh. too hot or always too cold. I mean, it's actually very vague because it's, it's very similar to Shruti. I mean, if I would be hot, would my brain know I'm hot and would react differently? <laughs> if I would be cold, my brain would know it's cold and would react differently. I mean, yeah. If no, my body right. would it's know, very relative. Yeah, if my body would know, then I think none of them is. Yeah. Would you rather? You can say, would you rather be uncomfortably hot or uncomfortably cold all the time? So that means your brain's aware. Okay, then uh, look, I'm going to say cold hmm. because if I'm cold, global warming is a real issue. If I'm hot, you know, I won't be able to. I, I love mountain. I love Himalayas. I won't be able to able to go to the Himalayas. If I'm cold, I can climb Mount Everest and all those mountains which I haven't climbed you know, yet. My dream is to climb Mount Tushu, uh, which has the height of twenty-two thousand seven hundred feet. But I, I would be able to do that. I, also, it won't be more fun. I mean, it won't be challenging if I'm like you know just climbing like this. Yeah. So I'm better to stick where I am today. <laughs> 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 That's what I would choose also for what it's worth. I would choose too hot. Yeah, I don't like okay. being cold. It just uh fuel warming is an issue. <laughs> Sorry. Oh for sure. No, I mean it's a, of course it's an issue, yeah. But you know, I'd still rather be too hot. <laughs>
This has been the Talk Editions podcast, episode 24 with Jatin Mohan. The music featured in this episode is Rag Multani, Vlambit Kayal, performed by Dr. Parminder Singh. This episode was produced by Charlotte Mundy, Taylor Brook, and me, Marina Kipperstein, and edited by me. And me, a little bit. If you like the Talk Editions podcast, please share it with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice, and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Nizagama Baniza, 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 Nizagama Baniza,